0: Okay, so it's great to have you, Clayton. Um, it's a pleasure to see you. We've, we've had a bit of correspondence to and fro. I reached out to you because I loved your article on medical ethics in the Branstone Institute, which was really funny because I think it was just literally a week or two before, I wrote a similar piece, a two-part piece, in um, um, the Conservative Woman, which... You know, mm-hmm. it was an online magazine, website. Um, and it was very similar to yours. Um, and it was lovely to hear from a doctor um, who thinks like me. In these times, there's not many like me anymore. <laughs> Sad to say. Sometimes it's felt quite lonely, to be honest. Um, so what I would love you to do is just introduce yourself to the listeners. Who are you? What do you do? What's your background? And then if you can just literally just talk me through your article, because honestly, I think everyone, everyone should hear what you had to say.
1: Well, Ahmad, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, It's really a pleasure to uh, see your face. We've talked a couple of times, but it's a pleasure to uh, kind of meet you, at least in the virtual, full virtual sense, I suppose. Um, Likewise. And it's a pleasure to be on your podcast. It's. like you say, it's been, to, to some extent, a, a lonely three years or so since COVID started, which is when I really got involved in a lot of the things that perhaps brought us to know about each other. Um, and yet at the same time, I've met a tremendous number of really wonderful people that like-minded people and I think people that are, I think, committed to trying to improve the medical profession and improve um, just... Uh, individual freedoms or individual liberties, um, in a way that, that, that I think is, is unfortunately lost on so many of our, of our fellow citizens. And so on the one hand, it's been, I agree, it's been kind of a lonely time, but on the other chance on the other side of it, um, you know, it's a chance for someone like you and me to meet and to talk and to share ideas that perhaps wouldn't have happened if these rough times hadn't occurred, um, to, tell you a little bit about myself. I am a physician in the United States in the state of New York. I'm in upstate New York, which is not rural, but it's not New York City. It's um, think of it as if you uh, were in California. It's not all L.A. and San Francisco. If you go into the Central Valley, it's agricultural and it's, you know, very different. And, And New York is kind of the same. If you're in downstate greater New York City, it's you know, it's the megalopolis, it's Gotham, it's all these things that we think of. If you go upstate, uh, it's a lot of woods, a lot of dairy farms, a lot of some smaller cities. I'm, I'm near Rochester, New York, which is um, third or fourth largest city in the state. And, um, you know, it's, it's a bit different. Um, but anyway, that's where I live. And um, I'm a physician, practicing physician for about 25 years. I do internal medicine. My father, by the way, is an orthopedic surgeon, so um, he has that in common with you, Um, but I stayed on the medical side, um, and uh, I uh, am in in active practice, have been throughout my career, um, but I became really active. I've always done some uh, teaching, and I worked for several years, for about six, seven years at the University of Rochester in the uh, Division of Medical Humanities and Bioethics. And I uh, stopped working there in about 2018. Um, but, you know, a lot of the stuff that I learned and I uh, taught to people in that setting, you know, was pretty firmly inculcated in my mind. And when COVID hit, You know, one of the things I realized and you realize these things, I think we talked about this, you realize these things gradually, because at first you can't kind of believe what's happening. And second, you can't quite believe why it's being done and you don't want to think that it's malicious and it takes time to really sort through all of it and kind of come up with a what's the word kind of a construct as to what's really going on. And of course, when you're on the unpopular side of the, of the opinions, um, it's even harder, but I I drew the conclusion that, you know, that essentially the medical profession dispensed with medical ethics, particularly the four basic pillars of it during the COVID era, they just cast it aside, just ignored it. And, you know, this is a deeply, deeply disturbing concept because, you know, I'm firmly of the belief that, as I think I said in the very early in the article, that, you know, the reason you have a code of ethics is the same reason you have a bill of rights. It's to curb people's ambition. It's to curb their, you know, libido- Dominandi, as Augustine called it, you know, this sort of desire to dominate others that's that's almost irresistible to people when they get into positions of power and authority. And it's no different in medicine than it is in politics or it is in the military or it is in business. Um, and so when you cast aside the code of ethics, you basically dispense with, you know, you you it effectively causes people's individual rights, their civil liberties to be lost. And I really feel feel strongly about that. And I think that that's really what's happened. And that's what I've tried to put forth in this article. So before you tell me your thoughts, because I'd be really
0: interested to know why you think doctors dispensed with medical ethics. I think we really need to look into that. Why don't you tell me and the listeners what are the four medical pillars, the four medical ethics, pillars of medical ethics? Because I think each one is actually quite detailed in itself. But can you just talk us through what those four pillars are?
1: Sure. So uh, I'd start off by saying this is very well established. This is very mainstream stuff. I mean, I learned this stuff in medical school. I'm sure you learned this stuff in medical school. The tradition's the same in in Great Britain as it is in in the United States. Yeah. I actually went to medical yeah. school in Canada. It was the same there. This is well established. This isn't this isn't you know esoteric stuff. Uh, the four pillars are autonomy, meaning patient autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence and justice. And if 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 you want me to take just in one sentence definition of those, and again, like you said, yes, they're please. all much more complicated than this in practice. But uh, autonomy is essentially patient autonomy. It essentially means that the patient has the final say as to whether a medical treatment is imposed upon them or not. They have right of refusal. And that doesn't mean yeah. that they're necessarily correct. In their decision making all the time, because I can tell you, I don't believe my patients are always correct, but they have that r- ultimate right of refusal, and that actually is a more, um, how shall I say it, a more um, involved process than just saying yes or no. Um, and if yes. you're really going to act as a physician in a medical in a in an ethical manner it's it's much more involved than you know um as long as i don't put a gun to your head you have a right to say no no there's a lot more to it than that the second is beneficence and this is the concept um well there's a quote in um goes back to um you know uh all the way back to hippocrates and there's a quote from the hippocratic corpus that says you you have to um Help when you can and, and above all, do no harm. And so the beneficent mm. side is to help when you can. And, and put very, very simply, the idea is that we shouldn't be doing something to somebody that's not going to help them, period. If there's no real prospect that is going to benefit that individual, then it shouldn't be done to them. There's no, uh, as I said in colloquial terms, I don't know if you have this phrase in the UK, but there's no taking one for the team in medicine. You know, you Mm. you don't say, well, some people are going to do something that's not going to help them one little bit, but it may help the herd. Uh, it doesn't yes. work that way, um, and then the 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 book the bookend to that is the non maleficence, which is you do not harm the patient. So if there's something that you know is going to harm the patient, or the risk benefit or the um, harm benefit analysis is unfavorable, then you just don't do it to somebody. Mm. And then the last one is justice, and justice is is generally in medical ethics. Um, sort of thought of as sort of distributive justice in a lot of ways. There's more to it than that, but it, it, it's a lot of it is, is allocation of resources and allocation of hardship. So, you know, you shouldn't be in a system where uh, a wealthy or in VIP gets immediate Cadillac-level care when the hoi polloi get nothing or get something much less than that. On the other hand, You shouldn't have a situation where the burdens of healthcare are all put on the poor or the rank and file and the wealthy and powerful are spared those. And, you know, so so all of those aspects were just dispensed with. They were just tossed aside. They were just completely um, ignored or completely um, just dispensed with during during the covid era.
0: I mean, that's a really good summary, by the way, of medical ethics. And I would argue that the, the formation of these four pillars of medical ethics, they haven't happened overnight. They didn't take place over a few years or even decades. I'd argue that it's taken centuries, if not millennia, um, to form and develop. And these, these pillars are structures, ultimately, not really just to guide doctors, But ultimately to protect patients, because being a patient, and I don't know if you've ever been a patient, I've been a patient, being a patient is quite vulnerable. It can be quite scary. And you can feel Mm -hmm. quite helpless. You feel you don't have control. You feel that you're in the mercy of others. It's a terrifying position to be in. And medical ethics is basically a way of safeguarding and protecting the patient from potential harm and abuse. And, you know, doctors, a lot of people put doctors as, you know, on a pedestal and, you know, you're a doctor and, you know, the mother-in-law loves the doctor, you know, for her daughter. <laughs> um, certainly in my yeah. society, in my culture, you know, but um, it's true in doctors all cultures. Also, yeah. <laughs> doctors are human <laughs> beings, aren't they? Doctors yes. are just as likely to lie. They're just as likely to cheat and do harm. And do things for monetary gain um, and for ulterior motives. You know, doctors are human beings. So you need something to protect the patient. And I would argue not only do doctors need to know medical ethics, (laughs) everybody needs to know medical ethics. Patients need to know medical ethics so they know their rights.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And and hopefully, you know, your article, my article will, will spread that word. And and that's important. And, you know, at the end of my article, I really said, here are things that we really need to do. And, and a lot of the change is going to have to come at the level of the patient because, you know, just like you say, doctors are human beings. They're flawed, you know, failed human beings. And they're going to in some instances, not all of them, but we I, the track record in the last few years is not very good, um, they're going to abuse their authority, they're going to abuse their influence, and they're going to abuse their power, whether it's systemically, which I think happened largely, or whether it's um, at individual levels when people feel compelled to follow the instructions and so on. So I agree completely with you. This is really a, pr- a largely a protection for the patient and for patients to be protected by it they're going to have to know that it exists and know what it's there for and if they know how to um, assert their rights then they're more likely to um, keep them
0: so let's talk exactly let's talk let's talk about autonomy let's break down the first pillar so autonomy is about patient having ultimate choice over what is and isn't done to their body, um, self-determination. How, yes. I, I, you know, I don't want to give my examples. What examples, like what What over the COVID debacle
1: years were examples of where that was thrown out the window? Right. Well, one of the most obvious ones is that, uh, again, we, we, we both agreed that you know autonomy when it comes to medical ethics is more complicated than just do you want this shot say yes or no um if you're really going to be ethical about it because and this is v- what you said uh, just a moment ago Ahmad was so important you know when you are a patient you can be often are in an extremely vulnerable situation you know you are scared you're sick you're worried, Um, you're out of your element, you know, you can be a very intelligent person, but you don't know the terminology that they're using. You don't know the the diseases. And one thing I find is that as doctors, we take tremendous for granted that we understand sort of what's between the lines when we explain something to somebody. So when I explain to somebody, Mm. you know, oh, you've got this condition and this is the treatment for it. Um, If it's something I'm at all familiar with, I know the pathophysiology behind the disease. I know what it isn't. I know what the disease is related to. I know what the five-year survival might be and all this stuff. But the patient doesn't know, in most cases, any of this stuff. So if you tell them, do this, they may think, if I don't do this, I'm going to die. If I don't do this... Then, then I'm in big trouble. Now, there may be an alternative to that, but they don't know what that alternative is. And so we take for granted, even when we're not you know, breaking <clears> the ethical code, when we're perhaps just being a bit sloppy, we're not explaining things well enough to people so that they can give true informed consent. And so informed consent is one of the key parts of subparts of autonomy. So if someone need, wants to accept or decline a treatment, we've already established that Ultimately, it's their choice. They need to have um, informed consent. And so informed consent means that you need to have a patient that's competent, that is someone who's capable of making the determination, someone who gets full disclosure, someone who expresses understanding of it. So that usually means being able to ask questions, maybe being able to go home and sleep on it. And then they have to voluntarily consent to it without coercion. So there's a lot of things there. Now, they're all common sense things, but but all, there's a lot there. And so if if you want to look at, just for example, the COVID vaccines, and I focus myself on the pediatric COVID vaccines because I think it's kind of, I don't know, I'm no lawyer, but I've heard lawyers tell me that tough cases make bad law, you know, so I'm going to take an easy case. I'm going to take something that never made sense and it never made sense. To even think about giving a COVID vaccine to a six-month-old child never made any sense at all. And I'll stand on Anthony Fauci's coffee table and scream that out loud. You know, kids do not die of COVID in any kind of significant manner whatsoever. Kids are not in significant (laughs) danger to COVID. There was a a study that just came out Israel.
0: Yeah. Sorry, Karen. I was going to say, not only does it not make sense.
1: Yeah. I was going to say it's criminal. It's criminal. It's criminal. Absolutely. It was criminal. It was criminal from the start. And anyone who knew the stats, and you could get the stats yourself with some difficulty. We all did. I'm sure you looked at the stats. But most people didn't. They don't know where to look. They don't think to do it. They can't really interpret statistics well enough. But, you know, there was that study, Ahmad, that you must have seen that just came out of Israel that, according to their review of their records, no Yeah. Perfectly healthy person in the country of Israel under the age of 50 died of COVID. Nobody. So you're telling me that you've got a country. How many people are there in Israel? Maybe 6 million people or something like that. 7 million. Nobody under 50. 7 million. Thank you. So you've got 7 million people. Look, kids take up a third of the population of the United States, 18 and under. So under 50 must be half the population or more. And nobody in Israel died of COVID unless they had underlying morbidity. I mean, that's those people don't need a vaccine for that disease. And if they're six months old, if they're a year old, if they're 18 and they're they're at risk for myocarditis, there's absolutely no justification whatsoever on the face of the earth. And like you said, it's criminal to push it on those people. So what happened? So going back to autonomy, how did you get people mm. to buy into this? Number one, you didn't allow mm. them full disclosure because anyone who tried to give disclosure about this, what I'm exactly. saying right now, that the risks were absolutely minimal in children, was shut down, yep. was silenced by Twitter, silenced by Facebook, was fi- yep. silenced by the governments, etc. And so you can't get... Um, I go into a lot more detail in the in the article, but you can't get full disclosure from somebody. I mean, you can't get informed consent from somebody if they don't have these disclosures. If they don't know that the risk to their child is infinitesimally small, that any harm's going to come to them from the vaccine, how can they make an intelligent decision whether it's right for their infant to get the vaccine or not? They can't. And so that's just one example of how things were <clears throat> were absolutely just thrown out the window. And it's a bit subtle, but it's not so subtle that the Anthony Fauci's of the world didn't know exactly what they were doing. You know, absolutely yeah. not.
0: Clayton, uh, that's a really good point. And do you not think not only was there no full disclosure, there was de- deliberate misleading. So, for example... No one was told about their absolute risks of the disease. No one was told, you know, you you had the media promoting this fear porn. You were told that people were dying and dropping Mm -hmm. down dead. Hospitals were heaving. ITUs, intensive care units were overwhelmed. Frontline staff were dying, you know. There were charts on the news with red charts and red lines and scary yellow, red colors, you know. And every day it was getting higher and higher. So you know, forget the the reality of the situation. Everybody was giving this impression that we were in the midst of this crisis. People are dying. You, you almost felt like there's a one in two chance you're going to get it and die. It was that bad, right? And um, so not only did you not know the reality, you were given this false picture this false world narrative of what was actually going on and because you're socially isolated and because your only source of news was the mainstream media which was all parroting out the same line you know you 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 kind of believed it and unfortunately people have an inherent obedience to authority they, they listen to the tv and they trust it and they believe it they think why why would they lie to us um and you know, I, I don't know about you, but here in the UK, any doctor who spoke out against what the government was saying, just speaking up for medical ethics, was suspended or investigated mm-hmm. by the hospitals, by the boards, um over here in the General Medical Council would take up an issue, and you know, you you were decapitated. And so not only yeah. was that you know, that was a, a warning to other doctors, hey. If you put your head above the parapet, this is
1: what you've got to expect. So don't, yep, it don't was do it. Yeah, very much the same. And I mean, you know, I had was at a um conference a couple of months ago with Peter McCulloch, who of course is, you know, world known now for how much uh, he's done to try and address these issues. And uh, another um woman who I know personally from our area who's a, a very courageous um Physician's assistant, and you know, all we compared notes, and all of us were harassed, investigated. You know, um, you know, it was it it was just. You're absolutely right that it's almost understated the way um, you know we express these things when we go through, for example, in the article and go through and say, you know, these these were these informed consent was denied because full disclosure was not allowed it was so aggressively the case that it could not have been anything other than deliberate it wasn't oh we're going to you know be quick and dirty because of the circumstances no it was absolutely uh, deliberate and absolutely malicious in its intent and and um you know people still don't I've never I don't know about you, but I never saw anything like that in the medical profession where you couldn't speak up and say, I disagree with this. I mean, you go on rounds and, you know, even when you I, were I, intern, I, I, an I, even when you actually. were a resident. No,
0: I have I have come across one area. There's a sacred cow, Clayton, and that's vaccines. If you dare to question well, vaccines, okay. vaccine have efficacy and safety then you're deemed a quack and a crazy person. You're an Andrew Wakefield nut job and you're the worst type of doctor Mm -hmm. ever. I'm afraid there is, there is, is there's a sacred cow called the vaccine. You, you dare not question it. And the funny thing is if you change the word vaccine for surgery, of course you can question surgery. Of course you can question an operation and the safety of it and the efficacy of it and the need for it. If you change the word vaccine for a drug, of course you can question the drug, this new drug, is it, is it really any good? Should we look at the data again? Should we, should we pause and have a halt and investigate the side effects? Change that word back to a vaccine? No, no, you, you can't. Don't you dare. How dare you question the vaccine? And I think that's You're right. an elephant in the room You're right. that needs addressing. Now, the next thing I would say You're is I consented right. to the patient today. Can I tell you about a consent I did today? So I, I, saw, I had a patient who's coming in for surgery um, on the 20th of June. So it's the 8th of June today for the listeners. So it won't, this won't be going live for about two weeks. So, so it's the 8th of June today. And on the 20th, you know, I've given plenty of time for the operation. I've brought the patient in early. We've had a conversation. And the conversation is, here's an operation. You want this operation. The alternative is not to have the operation. And these are what, what you can expect, the risks and the benefits of non-operative management. This is the benefit of the surgery. But there are risks. This is the the different types of risks. This is the frequency of the risks. And this is how to mitigate and reduce your risks. And there's no pressure. I'm not forcing you. I'm not coercing you. I'm not going to take your ability to drive, to work, to travel, to go to the local pub away from you if you choose not to have the operation. This is totally up to you. Do you have any questions? Now's the time. Ask me. If you have any questions between now and the surgery, you can ask me. You can pull out anytime you like. You can pull out on the day of surgery as we're wheeling you to the anesthetic room. No one's forcing you. Are you happy to go ahead with the surgery? Are you sure you're informed of all the facts and the details and the risks and what your benefits are? Okay, if you're happy, let's sign the consent form. But listen, you've got plenty of time to sleep on it. Take your time. It's taken us six months to get to this point anyway. I look forward to seeing you on the 20th. Any problem before then, let me know. That's how the consent went. Did that sound all right?
1: Honestly, it's heartwarming to hear a properly obtained informed consent after 3 years of what we've been through. I mean, that's exactly the way it's supposed to go and you've got all of those things that we talked about included in there, don't you? You've got um you've got the um uh the full disclosure or, you know, detailed disclosure, you've got the opportunity to ask questions, you you've got the as best you can you determine whether or not the person understands it. Um and um you you make sure that it's fully voluntary. You even give them a chance to go home and think about it in a sense. Uh and um you know and there's there's it's there's no coercion. In fact you can argue that when you go through those kind of processes, I don't know if you've ever felt this way, but I've I can tell you that when I have You know, it almost makes the patient think twice. Even if they ultimately want it, they think, "Oh, geez, you know, you know." I, you know, in rare cases, you know, people do die from this. I didn't know that. You know, they they usually think it through and say, "Well, the odds are one in three thousand, and I need it done, so I'm going to do it." But it actually it serves that important function of giving them kind of pause to think it over one more time. And you know, the absolute. It's absolutely the opposite of what happened for three years. You know, it's absolutely the opposite. So
0: every year, at least two of my patients on the day of consent will decide they don't want to go ahead with the surgery. And I see that as a success. I see that as a job well done. (laughs) The consent was done properly because it's shown that the patient wasn't right for the operation at the time. And funnily enough, they often come back a year later and they go, Mr. Malik, I wasn't ready at that time. You're absolutely right. You You picked it up. And I'm glad and I've got my life in order. I'm ready now. And what I didn't also add in this 22-year-old that I consented for surgery today, I insisted they bring a family member. So he came with his dad. He came with his pops. And we also recorded Mm -hmm. the consultation so that they can reference it later on so they won't forget. So that's how I think consent should be done. Now, if you look at what actually happened um, during the COVID years, I'm sure it was the exact same for you. You had a population that was locked down for nine months, roughly. They were socially is- isolated. They're bombarded with fear and propaganda, bioweapon grade. Here in the UK, they mm-hmm. actually use the military and psyops to, to engineer the narrative and the message to get people on board Same here. and compliant. Okay, so which you, if you think about it's incredible. So even if there was a life-threatening pandemic, that's pretty unethical, to say the least. But when you see that the data doesn't even support that, then it's criminal. It's absolutely criminal what it's happened. Brutal. So you've got the fear, you've got the propaganda, you got the psyops, you've got the lockdowns, you've got the social isolation. And if you think about social isolation, what do you do to a prisoner in jail, in prison who's been naughty, who's got into trouble, you isolate them because it's the worst mm-hmm. form of punishment. You know, isolating someone, putting them in a room on their own with no human contact, totally depriving them of all stimuli and human contact is the worst form of torture. And guess what? Our state sanctioned it. <laughs> we, we, we sanctioned that. So, and then. You dangle the ultimate carrot. Hey, guys, we will let you out of this situation if you take the jab. The jab is the way out of this. I'm sure it was Bill Gates or Fauci who said nothing will return to normal until we get a vaccine. That's right. That's right. Which is is very sinister when you look back at what happened. So they dangled the carrot. You weren't able to travel. You weren't. You, they were mandating it for your jobs. So, you, you know, imagine that was mm-hmm. an operation. I call you in, Clayton, and I say, listen, buddy, I need to tell you about something. There's a, there's a nasty condition going around, so you need to have an operation to save granny and your neighbor. You'd be like, really? I need to have an operation to save other people? Yeah, Clayton, you definitely have to have this operation. And you go like, is it safe? I don't tell you the fact that I I just cooked it up three months earlier in the garage, but I just turn around to you and say, yeah, yeah, it's totally safe. <laughs> and then you go, have you done it like uh, on a few people, like? And I'm like, yeah, like one dog that died, you know. And then uh, is there anything else you need to know? Well, yeah, you need this operation like twice a year, twice a year. Yeah, definitely twice. A- Doc, do you need to tell me anything else? Yeah, like if you don't have this operation, you're going to have to quit your job, you won't be able to travel, and you're a bit of a dumbass, racist and a misogynist and a white supremacist. You know, that's what happened. (laughs) Swap the word surgery, swap the word surgery for vaccine. That's what happened.
1: I mean, it was that ludicrous. It, It was ludicrous, and it was astonishing how once you put enough fear into people... Um, that more people didn't see it for what it was, which is exactly what you described. I'll I'll, I'll tell you one of the things that really made me realize just how sinister this whole thing was, because you talked about isolating prisoners, right? A prisoner who's, who's misbehaved in prison gets put in solitary, right? 30 days in the hole, right? Yeah. Boom. And, um, one of my boys was, right. One of my boys was, was put, uh, got COVID right when he started, um, college in 2021 and he was going to school in massachusetts which is about 300 miles from us and um he was far enough away from home if he lived right close to the school the parents had to come get the kid but if if he lived far enough away he could stay they they put him up in a in a hotel room for the week that he needed to be isolated and um so here's here's he calls me up it calls his mom and i up and he says you, you got to bring me home and we said, OK, what's going on? He says, well, they put me in the top floor of this motel, you know, um, a couple miles from campus. I have my own room. And he said, they bring me my meals three times a day. And he said, I'm allowed to leave the room to go out and walk in the parking lot one hour every day. And I said, oh, my God, Sam, I'm going to come get you. He said, "I don't, I don't think I could do this for a week." And I said, "Sam, I'm going to come get you." And I, I, it just rang a bell, Ahmad. It rang a bell. So what I did is I, I just started getting on the internet and I looked around and I said, "What is up with this this you know hour a day?" And I yeah. found out it's the Geneva Conventions for solitary Confin- confinement. If you oh, follow shit. the Geneva Conventions and you put somebody into solitary, you have to let them go out in the exercise yard one hour a day they had this kid in solitary. This kid was getting not 30 days, but seven days in the hole because he had, you know, and, and I know that this college didn't cook this up themselves. They got this handed down to them from, you know, like you said, probably someone in the military. Um, and so I went and picked the kid up and I brought him back home and we found a place. My parents were not at, uh, uh, one of the properties, they have a property in Florida and property in New York. And he stayed there for a week and he got a phone call about five days later from the board of health of Massachusetts. Mm. Calling him up out of the blue saying, what are you doing in New mm. York? Mm. So they're tracking his phone. Oh shit. <laughs> and I'm looking at oh, this my and I'm God. saying to myself, my poor kid my eighteen-year-old kid, freshman college, yeah. just is, a being, boy. is being put in solitary confinement Is getting put in solitary confinement. He's eighteen years old. We know darn well he's not going to die, and nobody in his class is going to die. Like I said, nobody under fifty, no healthy people under fifty in the whole country of Israel died of COVID. They've said it. The, the mm. in, you know in, the Israel government has said that, and. And they're They got this kid in solitary confinement unless I come pick him up. And if I come pick him up and I take him home, they track his phone and they ask him why he left the state. And I said, this is this is this is evil. This is not right. Evil. This is not. This is not the United States. This is not a free country, you know, and, and you're in the UK. I mean, that's the parent country to the United States. I mean, this is where freedom, individual liberty began, right? It was in Runnymede or whatever. Supposedly. Whatever year yeah, supposedly. that was. Mm. Supposedly, right? And And granted, they've constantly had to cut the head off an occasional king because he's trying to take over too much. But but, you know, you realize that this is not this is not. A liberal democracy we're living in. I said this to myself right then and there, and I, I, you know, had already gotten involved because the the schools have been closed for a year. But I mean, I'm thinking to myself, this—that's when I realized this is absolutely 100% malignant. This is absolutely evil, and this is an absolute affront to the civil rights and civil mm. liberties of the citizens of this country. There's no, there's no other way to look at it. And uh, Absolutely. It, that was just a, an absolute eye-opener for me. And that was when I just said, look, I, I'm not giving anyone the benefit of the doubt anymore who's in a position of power. Never again. Um, 100%. And, and, you know, maybe that's overstatement, but that's 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 when, you know, it's not when I got involved. I was involved for a year or so before then. But that's when I really decided that this is every bit as malevolent as, 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 as you can imagine. 100%. Clayton, I'm going to stop now.
0: Because I'm cooking in my studio here in the garden. It's actually a beautiful sunny day today. I had the doors shut because the kids were out in the garden, but my wife is taking them up for bath time. So I'm going to get some water. I'm going to open the door and then we'll resume. So I'm just going to pause now. Sure. One of the things that this this whole debacle has done, one of the good things is it's shown me who my true friends are and it's made me find real friends. My tribe from across the world, mm-hmm. um, you know, you know, we might not have met, but I trust you, Clayton. I know you're a man of integrity and ethics. This is the, has been the ultimate litmus test. You're a good egg and you're a good human being. So um, moving on to, so we, I think we've t- talked about autonomy. We've talked about how there was no autonomy. There was no informed consent. There was no choice. There was no option. There was no information. There was coercion and there was an incentivization as well. It's not just enough to say, listen, you'll be punished if you don't take this. Coercion um, is bad, but so is incentivization. You know, <laughs> I shouldn't be saying to my patient, hey, mm-hmm. if you have this operation, I'm going to give you $500. You know, you you know, you shouldn't be right. doing that. And, you know, I think we were, they were handing out burgers and donuts and, you know, God knows what, you know. You know, life was easier and better for you if you had the vaccine and the passport. You know, this is ridiculous. Yep. Um. My my cats just come in. Uh, yeah, it's it absolutely wrong. Might... So that's and that's autonomy. What's number two when it comes to the pillar?
1: <clears throat> right. So so number two is is beneficence and beneficence, uh, as I said. Um, It means that as a physician, you're obligated. You're ethically obligated. You, You have a privilege. It's a privilege to be a physician people trust you. You have a standing in the community. You're assumed yes. to be part of this um, honorable profession. And yes. if, if if you have, if you're granted those things, you have responsibility. And one of the responsibilities is to act for the benefit of your patients. And, you know, I'm a pr- mostly a primary care physician. And for the last 15 years of my career, that's essentially what I've been. And I tell my patients all the time that my first priority is to keep you alive as long as it's reasonable to do so, right? You know, not it's not my decision, but you know, I'm not gonna torture you to keep you alive long, longer than than would be humane. But short of that, my first job is to keep you alive, and my second job is to keep you as healthy as I can. And I said, you're not always gonna like everything I tell you, because some of the things that keep you healthy may not be what you would rather do. You know, if you're smoking two packs a day, I'm gonna tell you to stop doing that and so on. But, yeah. but that's my responsibility to you. And and I am not going to prioritize anything above that, <clears throat> period. And one thing that I've said before, uh, I don't think I mentioned it in the article, but I've said before, is that to a limited extent, and the extent should be limited, but to a limited extent, it's, it's probably reasonable to have a little bit of healthy tension between A boots on the ground physician that sees patients like yourself or myself and the people at the very highest level of um of public health of medical public health yeah because you know the decision there should be a little bit of a little bit of tension if they're going to make a honest appraisal of something and say we really should recommend that Most everyone gets such and such. You know, that may be something where I have to go to my patient and have a discussion with them and say, well, in your case, yes, but in your case, no, Um, that's okay. But what we've gotten into now is a situation where I think overwhelmingly physicians, partly because they don't want to get in trouble. You know, they don't want to be treated the way that you described, you know, all of the dissenters in the UK were treated and the dissenters in the United States were treated. They don't want to be mistreated by the people above them. And yeah. secondly, it sometimes is easier. Mm. And thirdly, sometimes they're incentivized. You know, there's a lot of incentives. A lot of pediatricians in the United States make a lot of money if they have a certain percentage of their of their patients um, vaccinated. So really, you've got all these reasons why. Oh, Yes. And so the reason, there's a lot of situations where um, it, people don't have that natural tension. They just basically capitulate um, to the higher ups and they don't look out for the individual benefits or the individual needs of their patients. And this just went into this just got put on steroids during the COVID era. You know, it, it was hard enough for a kid to get a medical exemption to go to public school in the United States, in many states, um, for traditional vaccines. um, But forget about it for, you know, for COVID. You know, this was something that no one was going to university that didn't get, you know, the COVID vaccine in most cases. So, you know, they basically are jobs, you know, to get a medical or a religious or a conscience exemption uh in in most uh me- in most medical jobs was absolutely impossible in the United States during the heart of the 2021 push to you know the whole pandemic of the unvaccinated era you know that was it, all of these all of these um occasional um exceptions that were made that are important you have to have those a just society. They they were just dispensed with again. So this notion of beneficence that you have to look out for the individual benefit of the individual patient was simply dispensed with. Um, and I, I still think, you know, the best example of the beneficence, which we talked about in detail, we maybe don't need to go through in detail again, but it's just that you would even presume that you would put these vaccines into young children when you know that the risk of death or severe disease in young children is essentially zero. And they knew that in June of 2020. They knew that very early on, way before the vaccines were around. And they're still pushing pediatric vaccines in the United States. The uptake is poor. People are catching on, but you know, they've already taken them completely off the shelf in the Scandinavian countries. I don't know about the UK. They don't they don't allow them. Because the, the, the data is so damning, they're, they're pushing so pushing them in the UK. So there you go. So you know what is it? And this would be an interesting thing to find out. What is it about Sweden? What is it about Denmark that is so different from the UK and the United States that one, you know, country has decided to look at the data and do the right thing, and these other countries have decided to absolutely just. Uh, to use an Americanism, double down on these. So, just So it's I'm interesting. Really
0: yeah, I, I interviewed someone called um, Efrat Fenigson, who's, uh, amongst other things, a citizen journalist from Israel. And she argues that it's never been about public health. It's never been about, you know, our well-being. It was all about control and digitalization Mm -hmm. and IDs and passports and health passports and vaccine passports. And actually in Sweden, it's one of the most digital countries already. They need their ID for everything. They can't go anywhere or do anything without this ID and there's tracking everywhere. So they've already got Mm -hmm. that in place. The society is already digitalized. They didn't need to coerce people to take a vaccine to to develop that system because it's already there. So the reason why it's being forced upon us is because we haven't been digitalized. We haven't been forced down that pathway, and this was a way to get us into that place. That's her theory, by the way. I'm just telling you; it's interesting. That's you can. That's, it kind of makes sense. It's,
1: it's one more. Th- it does. It's one more thing, though. I shake my head. It's one more thing that's kind of depressing. <laughs> It's, you know, it's, it's like depressing. the only reason the Swedish government isn't doing it is because they have already got everybody digitized, right?
0: Yeah. So yeah. Uh, <laughs> so what's the, they, they don't need to do this it's vaccine not, business because they've got it. They've got the system in place anyway. So that was just interesting. Um, yeah, I know. So um, what was what it I was going to say to you? Oh, yeah. Basically, Clayton, back to the second pillar. If you were asked to do something to your patients and you knew it was wrong, and you 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 didn't go ahead, and it was at the risk of your job and not being able to pay your bills. I don't know your financial system um, set up, but you know I've still got a mortgage, I've got a young family you know I need to earn um to pay the bills i i would you would you sacrifice your career your job the the financial struggles because you're doing the right thing for your patient, or would you just just shut up? And just do as you're told.
1: I believe I would. I certainly hope I would. I certainly have put myself into a considerable amount of risk so far. So I really believe I would. Um, you know, it, it, it's. This is what I'm
0: trying to, you know. Do you, not it, think, do you not think most of our peers, though, have chosen differently?
1: I, I do. I think they have chosen Differently, I think a percentage of them, I think there's a range in all of this stuff with COVID. I think there is a range of understanding of what's really going on. And, and mm-hmm. I find that I'm finding stuff out all the time. And um, there's a comedian in the United States. Her name is Lily Tomlin. And she has a quote where she says, um, every day I'm more cynical, but I just can't keep up. And I... You know, just listening to you tell me your other guests explanation for why the Scandinavian countries are not pushing these vaccines, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? You know, they they know that the whole vaccine thing is the childhood vaccines or whatever are are absurd. They've already got what they really want, which is a digital, you know, sort of social credit system in place. Mm. So they don't Mm. need to do this. But we don't have that. And so our countries don't have that. So they are going to use this. They're going to play this to the hilt until they can get as far as possible. That's, you know, that's really um, that's really a bit discouraging because I thought it's dark because you'd think that maybe someone saw the light and said this just isn't worth it. We're not going to do it. But it's because they've already achieved their, the, the, the the real intended purpose of this. Exactly. And so, you know, it's hard for me going back to your question. It's hard for me to know where everybody is because I'm learning things all the time like this. And I don't know for a fact that that's true, but boy, it sure makes a lot of sense and it sure explains a lot. And
0: Clayton, I would argue that you don't really need to know the facts. You know, I didn't, I'm not great at maths and numbers and statistics. And I don't care what the fatality rate ratio is or whatever. The fact is, the fundamentals of medical ethics are medical ethics. It's like the laws of physics. Absolutely, they're un- they're undeniable. Yeah. You can't argue with them. Mm-hmm. You can't say today it's right. a good day and tomorrow it's a bad day. And today we're gonna park them, and tomorrow we're gonna we're gonna you know carry out the medical ethics. And, but today, you know, it's suspended because it's not a good day for medical ethics. No, it, it doesn't work like that. Right. So I don't, I don't it think it really matters whether you know all the facts, whether you know all the numbers and the figures and the statistics. My, my pushback would be to say that all these doctors fundamentally should have known medical ethics and they didn't, which was terrible. Because we are meant to be mm-hmm. the ultimate defenders of medical ethics. And if they and if they did know medical ethics, they chose to park it. And that is equally bad. I don't see any option that's great, to be honest. I'm not very forgiving.
1: Right. <laughs> I anyway. agree with you. I agree with you. I, I I I try to seek for you know I try to um I'm not looking for excuses for f- other folks. I, I, You know, the funny thing, Ahmad, is I, I didn't I've never thought of myself and I don't know about you, but I've never thought of myself as a courageous person. I've never thought of myself as some, you know, once more into the breach kind of hero in any way, shape or form. And so, you know, when it's it's three years later and all you will get from people is a half-hearted semi-admission that oh yeah yeah you were kind of right about that yeah you kind of feel like you're in it's invasion of the body snatchers you know it's 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 yes you you don't know who's still you still still you you know you don't know who they got him who's a real human being they got her yeah. I, and I think that that's really that's it's 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 just really hard. And yeah and again I'm still working my way through through it. I think you're right. I think there is very little excuse for it. I I said in the um in my article that people don't tolerate much cognitive dissonance, particularly people whose character is, is impaired. You know, they just don't tolerate it. And so to go and to get somebody to say, you know, I screwed up, you know, I fell short. I didn't do what I should have done. I failed. (laughs) Who who has said that? There's been the folks that from the start said this is wrong and have fought it and have kind of suffered for it to some greater or lesser extent, have been punished for it. And they now come out with a little bit, a certain amount of, I think people respect those of us who did that. I think they deep down know that we're We were right that our B.S. detectors were working when other people's weren't. Mm, mm. But a full admission. Hey, oh, my God, you were right. I was wrong. Good on you, mate. You're the greatest. Nada. From my colleagues. Nothing. 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 And that's a real, you know, that's really, that's a disappointment. I don't know what else Uh, to say. 100%. So let's move on to the third one. What's what's the third pillar, my friend? So the third pillar is non-maleficence. Okay. And so what we look for there is that's the 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 everyone in medicine, even if they'd never studied medical ethics enough to learn all of these four pillars, they know the prime medical dictum in in Latin, it's primum non-nocera, which means first do no harm. And the idea is that you don't hurt your patients, you know, you don't kill your patients, you don't harm your patients. Um, it's, it's a good first again, step. It comes it? from, it's, 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 it is. It's, it's, and and it's, so it's, it's, it's a, it's a wonderful first step. And, and it's, it's a humbling first step too, which I think is really important. You know, if, if yeah. it says, if you have to be told not to hurt your patients, that implies that you're in a position where you very easily could hurt them. Right. hundred percent. And, and you got to and you got to take care not to do it. And, and yeah. you may do it accidentally. You may do it at times. You may do it even because nothing is 100% guaranteed, but you're not going to set out with the harm of your patients in mind.
0: Never. We've even got a name for um, it. Iatrogenic, like said, we've even got a name for it. Iatrogenic harm. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Isn't it the third highest cause of death in the States or something?
1: It's quite high. I think, I think it was prior to COVID. It may be first now for all we know, but uh, it was, it's, it's always been up there. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the, the statement from Hippocrates, as I said, I'll I'll quote it here as, as to diseases make a habit of two things to help, or at least to do no harm. So Mm. to help is the beneficent side of it. And the, to do no harm is the non-maleficence. And I think that when we really look through what's happened during the COVID era, I think that, you know, as you pointed out, you know, a lot of this was not just non-maleficence being being, um, ignored. It was outright maliciousness. It was outright Mm. deliberate harm because you can't deny people treatments to the extent that early treatment was denied and not basically be accepting the fact that a certain number of people are going to die from that, from, from, that, uh, from doing that. And, and I think that's one of the things that happens. So, for example, um, this is a common um, comment that I make. Um, I take care of a fair number of patients with rheumatologic disorders, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, and so on. And I have a fair number of people um, on hydroxychloroquine. And they're on, you know, 200 milligrams twice a day of hydroxychloroquine for decades. Mm. You know, it's 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 a safe drug. <clears throat> it yeah. was an over-the-counter drug before COVID in both France and Canada. And then when COVID struck, they changed it and they made it a a, a prescription-only drug. Now, why did that happen? Um, and it became impossible. Where I worked to get hydroxychloroquine um, prescribed for five days for a patient with early COVID. However, my patients with rheumatoid arthritis, they could get their 200 milligrams twice a day, essentially for decades, refilled mm. on a 90-day supply. And so when you see this, you say to yourself, "What is going on here?" This is not a dangerous drug. It's not an expensive drug. If someone took five days of this, it's not going to do them any harm. And yet you've got Fauci and people saying this is a dangerous drug. And I'm listening to this and I'm saying, no, it's not. No, it's not. I prescribe this. And I can get it for one indication, but I can't get it for another indication. Something's wrong here. Something's very, very wrong. Who cares if I give somebody five days of aspirin? Who cares? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's very much similar to what you're talking about here. But they cared, and they cared for a reason. If it didn't work, but it didn't do any harm, they wouldn't have cared, right? If it didn't do any good, but it didn't hurt anybody, and it cost a couple bucks for a five-day course, who cares? But they clamped down on it in this country like you can't believe now, people say, well, that's just, you know, it's, and they lied to everybody and said, oh, it's dangerous. And I can tell you from my own practice, it's not a dangerous drug. It was over the counter in, in developed countries that have good healthcare systems. You know, so, so here's the, when does that become absolute malice? You know, they, they didn't know, to be honest with you, for sure, whether or not or how effective hydroxychloroquine might have been. But they, Took it off the market. Yeah. Now, how many people died because of that? That's malice. That's not only maleficence. That's outright malice. Same thing with Ivermectin. Um, and what did they vitamin replace D? them with? They replaced them with right vitamin D. We've I've seen things here where there's there's actually been a small upsurge. It's really interesting in some of the you know um, to my mind more questionable outlets like Medscape and so on that have said you don't really need to take vitamin D. Yeah, no. And it's like, who cares? Who cares if you take 2,000 IUs of vitamin D? It's not going to do you any harm. It's cheap as dirt. It is a vitamin. You need some of it. And I live in a place where it's cloudy eight months out of the year. So, you know, half yeah. of my patients do have low levels. I got a lot of African-American patients, hard to get their vitamin D levels up because of the, you know, just because of the the melanin in their skin without a supplement. Yeah, and we've too. got these sources telling you That you're not supposed to, you're not supposed to, you're not supposed to take vitamin D. It's like, why do you care? And, you know, again, you start thinking about this and you think there's a very good reason why. Because they don't want you to have these things. They want you to be vulnerable. I'd go further. what's going on. There's no other.
0: mm -hmm. I'd go further. I'd say, Clayton, they want us to be sick. They want us to be sick and dependent on them. They don't want a fit and healthy population. You know these simple measures that you're talking about were definitely suppressed: vitamin D, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, just simple stuff. You know, um, and it was there was a, you know I've never heard this before. There's nothing. There's nothing for this respiratory virus. This is nonsense. And and you know, and I know, viral infections are not really the killers. It's the secondary bacterial pneumonias. You get right. them antibiotics. Mm-hmm. You give them support, hydration, antibiotics, and that's how you manage these. But <clears throat> we were told they weren't. And then, you know, there's a, a rimdevazir is a big thing, that antiviral. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how many people died from that. You know, this toxic antiviral is still
1: being used. Still it's being used. Still being used here. Still being used. And and you know, and then it, I'll tell you the other things that just jumped out at me early on. Yeah. Um being in New York, you know, of course, New York City was legitimately hit very, very hard early on. Um, and um, there was this big thing about ventilators. And they were talking about making 20,000, you know, um, you know, these sort of low-cost, simplistic yeah. ventilators available to patients in New York City. Now, of course, they never really needed them all. They all went unused. Yeah. But I'm thinking to myself, I back when I first finished my... Uh, training, I did four years where I did i c u medicine, not just primary care medicine, and I remember very in a small hospital on on a, a Native American Indian reservation out west um, and um, we had a six bed i c u and we you know had patients on the ventilators and whatnot and I remember from you know twenty years ago the first thing about getting putting someone on a ventilator was how am I going to get them off mm. And every single day, when you rounded on that ICU patient, you said, "Can I get this guy a little closer to getting off the ventilator?" Because mm. putting people on ventilators is a temporizing measure that you that is harmful to them. It's toxic to be on a ventilator, and it was always a question of can you wean them, can you get them off? We had I had rules that even in my three years of my training, I kind of you know had had adopted, and. You know, the idea was get them in the hospital, throw them on the ventilator. And I'm thinking, really? Yeah. And now you realize that they were paid an extra $40,000 or something if the patient required ventilation. You know, and you'd get an extra so much money if they required remdesivir. And you'd get so much money if they um, had a... COVID diagnosis. And if they died and you put COVID illegally, there was a a guy by the name of Scott Jensen, who's a physician in um, Minnesota, who took exception to the notion that they were doctoring the way that the state was filling out death certificates to put COVID on these death certificates improperly. And he's, you know, he's still fighting for his license in, in Minnesota. So you realize just how much malfeasance is going on. And so, you so, just, that, like
0: just you to said, recap, to recap, hospitals were getting paid more forty thousand forty thousand dollars more to put a patient on a ventilator. Pay, um, their hospitals were getting paid more if patients went on remdesivir. Patients were getting paid. Uh, the hospitals were getting paid more if patients were being diagnosed with COVID and it was a COVID death. That's correct. You're nodding. That's correct. So that if that's that, cor- that's, that it, is correct. That's incentivization. Absolutely. And you're going to have hospital managers, private hospital groups, hospital managers saying to their doctors, hey, make sure you do this Fall And I don't know about you, but in the UK, we've got rid of the individual doctor-patient relationship. You know, more and more, it's protocol and guideline driven. Guidelines, it's meant to be a guideline, a guide. But it's not really a right. guideline, it's more it's is Orwellian. Guideline means orders. This is what you're mm-hmm. meant to do. Don't deviate from these right. or orders. This is the order. Follow this order. And if you disobey the order, you get punished. You get investigated. You get pulled right. up. Why are you doing this? And these guidelines, you know, are you know hospital-based guidelines, but are increasingly are coming from central places like in the in the UK, it's the National Institute for Clinical Excellence. Sounds lovely, you know. There's a few individuals who are sitting on a panel, formulating these guidelines at a national level, passing it down to all the hospitals, and then the doctors are following the guidelines. There's no individualized, tailored patient care it's just the guidelines what the hell is all about and then isn't that susceptible to corruption to you know malevolent forces and influences and big pharma corrupting individuals to make them choose things that may not be in the best interest of a patient you know I, i just feel like that's part of the problem as well that doctors are no longer working with critical thinking skills but the incentivization from a financial point of view, what you've just told me in the States, I find shocking. I don't know what the situation is here in the UK, how it worked here. Um, but I find that quite
1: scary actually, what you've just described. Yes, it's 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 terrifying. And and you know, it, it was something that was hidden, but you know, you can only hide it so much. So if you're really poking around, you knew that it existed. But the average person, of course, doesn't know that. And so, you know, we talk about non-maleficence, you know, it, it really the whole conversation kind of goes off the rails pretty quickly because, again, it really turns into a, mal, a an active malice in so many instances, um, you know, the, the the you know, the in so many ways, even in addition, even separate, excuse me, from covid. Nowadays, I see in the large hospital systems and certainly in the public health sector, you know, the individual patient's health is at best third on their list of priorities. The the monetary aspect is higher and the control aspect is probably foremost. That's probably the highest of all, because if you can dictate what someone does and doesn't do, then you can control the revenue stream that comes from them down the road in the in the future you know and 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 you can control what they do and what they don't do in the future down the road and so i think that you know I, I i say this openly now you know you have to assume there there hopefully are exceptions but you have to assume that your health is at best the third priority if you're going into the healthcare system one is controlling your behavior and two is profit and it really helps to think of yourself as a commodity. It's you're you're a head of cattle, you know. There's money to be made if you get that shot. There's money to be made for the doctor potentially. Not all doctors. There's money to be made by whatever entity issues the vaccine, whether it's the pharmacy in the United States, increasingly now, or the um, doctor's office. Or uh, you know, obviously, the pharmaceutical companies make a ton of money and the the regulatory folks in the United States at least many of them are hopelessly captured by pharma you know a lot of these people at uh, CDC and NIH hold patents in these products so they make money every time someone gets the jab so it's just you're lucky if 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 you're if they genuinely after they make their money and after they control your behavior they actually want you to get better you know, There's another the one you priority, missed. You know, good.
0: What's yeah, that? You, you, the one is that that they also profit from the injuries of your of the jabs. You know, you get jab injured, you have to go back to a doctor, and mm-hmm. they profit from your misery. Mm-hmm. It just keeps going on and on mm-hmm. and on.
1: It's it's so sad. It is. It's it's a it's. A, it's a crazy cycle, and that's what we're up against. And and it's really something that, um, you know, the 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 non maleficent side of it is so um, is is so discouraging. You know, um, it's all discouraging. But that's one that really, so, like Clayton, I said, the whole thing kind of goes off the rails.
0: Clayton, how many doctors are in the states? Because over here in the UK, we've got two hundred eighty thousand, and honestly, like less than. Probably ten are vocal on social media or publicly against the narrative, whether it be the lockdowns or the mandates or the jabs or speaking up about the adverse effects now that we're seeing. I refuse to call them vaccines they 're not vaccines although i i'm now i don't I question even traditional vaccines now and their efficacy mm-hmm. um but there's there's very few doctors in the u k who speak out. What is it like in the in, in the States? What's the
1: proportion? Is it just as low? I think it's low. I mean, I think that there is a small, vocal group of people who refuse to shut up. And um, I think there's a huge percentage of people that just want things to go back to normal and are, I think, still naive enough to think that there's a normal to go back to. Um and I think there's, um, you know, people that just, I think, have a have an idea of what's going on, but just don't have the wherewithal to to speak up. And uh, um, again, it's always a range, but I, I it's a small number. It's not, you know, 10, but it's it's probably I've I've come to the realization that I know a lot of them. And if I know a lot of them. There aren't very many of them because, you know, it's how many people does one person, yeah. you know, get yeah. to know? So it's, it's, it's a very small number. I mean, it's sad.
0: It's very depressing.
1: You know, I,
0: at some point, times, you know, I almost feel ashamed of my profession.
1: I feel, and you no, can't ashamed. That. I'm very ashamed of it. Very much so.
0: That's really sad to hear. So why why are you ashamed of your profession?
1: I was someone who I think I've never thought of myself as a naive person. I don't think most people around me, I'm kind of a skeptical guy by nature. But you know, it's you know, disillusionment is 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 a hard uh, thing to uh, to process, and I, I'm very disillusioned, very discouraged with my profession because the level of willingness to just speak up. You know, your question before: Would you do the wrong thing? You know, if you knew it was going to hurt your patient? And the answer is: I. The best I can come up with is: I don't think so. I really don't, and I, I've I've gotten in trouble for not doing it. So I would say, hopefully, no. I don't like to brag about myself, so I say that much, but the percentage of people who just shut up and get in line is, uh, to me, was astonishing. It was astonishing in a bad way. The number of people that would really just, and you know, the thing that I, I realize is that, you know, we're still standing, you know, Peter McCullough is still standing, you know, Robert Malone's still standing, you know, so it's not like, So much of the threat, it, the threat's real for speaking out, but, and who knows what the future holds, but a lot of it is your own self-censorship. A lot of it is your own unwillingness yes. to just say, this is wrong. I'm going to stand up, see, say what I, say what I, and see what happens. You know, how many people went out, really spoke up in the initial part, got, really got clobbered and decided this isn't worth it? I, I'm not aware of anybody. I mean, the people that spoke up, for the most part, are still speaking up. And the people that never spoke up are still silent. So the the, the litmus test that you described was came up in 2020. It didn't come up in 2023. Very few people have come over to the other side in a vocal way. Um, I guess it's just not in their behavioral makeup to do that.
0: I think, um, um, you know, everybody after everybody after watching Schindler's List thinks that they would be Oscar Schindler rescuing all the Jews. But actually, Mm -hmm. in reality, what I've realized is most people would be the guards herding people onto the trains and then going home Mm -hmm. and tucking their children into bed. That's a reality. And that's a very sad reality. And I really, I expected better of my, yeah, I expected better of my medical colleagues. I think, you know, the reason why we were and I don't think we are as much now. The reason we were held in such high esteem was we were seen to be a noble profession, a profession of honourable people who put the patient first. And I think what the debacle of the last three years have shown is we don't. We do not put the patient first. We put ourselves first, our careers first, our reputations, and to, to get along and have a quiet life and not to upset anyone. And I think that's why I'm ashamed of my profession, <clears throat> because, you know, we're not accountants. We're not bloody lawyers. We're not stupid, lying, scumbag politicians. We're meant to be doctors, the most noble of professions. We haven't behaved like it. And now, no. I, w- I would add the reason why I'm even, you know, I am, a, I'm, I am upset. I'm, I'm upset for the following reasons, Clayton, and I don't know whether this resonates with you. I'm upset because a significant number of doctors not only turned their eye and, you know, call it wilful will, blindness or whatever, but a significant minority are going out against those people like myself who are questioning things and attacking our characters, trolling us on, on, on Twitter or social media, and even going further, reporting us to the General Medical Council. Oh, Yes. In the UK, there are six doctors who are raising legal funds to challenge the GMC because they feel they haven't gone against high-profile misinformation doctors. So these are fellow doctors trying to censor and silence people like me who are doing nothing but standing up for medical ethics. That's where we are now. Then you also have doctors who are gaslighting their patients. So when a patient says I had a booster and a week later I had a heart attack, do you think this is because of the booster? The answer is, of course not. When a patient comes and says, I've got a strange neurological condition after taking the booster, do you think it's vaccine related? No, it's not. You know, they're gaslighting patients. Mm -hmm. And I think for all these reasons, I'm just so upset with my colleagues, and I, and I, I don't understand how we can get out of it. Now, does any of this resonate with you? I mean, I don't know what it's like in the U.S.
1: It does. I think that there's a tremendous, I guess the best word I can say among the rank and file is a tremendous desire to just have this all vanish into the past. I think that when you talk about folks who are still aggressively, you know, prosecuting the case that, you know, the COVID response was appropriate, I would be tempted to say, find out who these folks are. These, thr- these people are taking legal action against your general medical counsel or whatever. Find out who they are. I would bet it's anonymous. a anonymous sum of money. Th- They're anonymous. Well, okay if you could find out who they if someone could find out who they are i'll bet you would find out they're very heavily funded people i'll bet you would find out that they're 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 paid actors yeah. Um, because there's really no other justification for that. There's no other reason to spend your time, to my mind, doing that, except that you're a paid actor, you're a heavily paid actor, Um, or unless you're someone who's in so deep, unless you're a Fauci type character where you actually fear that, you know, you're going to be held accountable eventually if you don't continue to suppress free speech. Um, But I would guess that Um I think that. A tremendous amount of people in general and doctors in in particular in in where I am just want this all to be over, and the problem is I just don 't think it's you know i I think this was a prototype. <laughs> you know, as I think I said in the article, I don't think this was a failed attempt. I think this was seen as seen by people in a position of power as a prototype. You know, next time they'll refine the messaging and next time they'll handle the dissenters slightly differently. And next time they'll be a bit more subtle in some respect. Um, you know, I don't see this as ending because you don't see anybody a being held accountable. You don't see any mea culpas from anybody. And you don't really see any restructuring of this sort of big medicine apparatus. So there's no reason to think there is some. What do they call it? Sort of a tactical retreat where they kind of admit certain things slowly. There's a political term for it, but I'm forgetting what it is. But it's kind of controlled informational. Controlled release. There you go. Right. Exactly. And I think there is kind of that going on. But that's Mm. that's just part of the plan. Right. That's just part of the plan. Oh, yes. You know, that was an overstatement. But, you know, given the fog of war, you know, that's we did the best we could. But that's the closest I've seen anywhere to a real mea culpa. There's no admission that, hey, we screwed up or, hey, you know, 110,000 people in 2022 in the United States died of drug overdose. And, you know, that has nothing to do with being locked down for two years. Or you know, for more or less for 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 two years. Come on, you know. So there's not even, a, a, or 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 as you say, you know, there clearly is significant vaccine injury, you know, with the the COVID vaccines, and there's no admission, you know. Look at the the, the issue with the athletes, you know, the young athletes uh, dying of cardiac arrests and of heart attacks and and so on and myocarditis related problems, and there's absolutely no acknowledgement that maybe these vaccines could have played a role even in that. So I, I, I to, to get back to my point, I just don't see this as something that's going to get back to normal because to get back to normal, there has to be an accounting for what happened. And, and, and yes. you know, short of you and I writing our articles where we try to keep all Remind. this stuff from being memory hold. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, the people in power don't feel compelled to make any kind of admission of even imperfection in what they did, much less, you know. Well, mistakes. there's
0: that scene there's that scene of Bill Gates on a sofa with his ex-wife saying next time it'll be even worse. And if people aren't scared of it this time, they'll definitely be scared next time. And it's like, what pandemics happen once in a in a, a generation, once in a hundred years if you even call it a real pandemic. I even question whether it was a pandemic. Um and now you can start predicting I mean, Fauci even predicted there's going to be a a pandemic during Trump's reign. And now Bill Gates is saying the next pandemic is the one that is feared. I mean, what what are these people concocting? You know, I I agree with you. I don't think this is the end all and be all. Um, I think pandemics are great business. They're good for business and for all the other reasons that people are coming up with. You know, I don't know the reason why they're doing this, but I've heard all the theories and it all kind of makes sense to me. And the reason why I'm mm-hmm. speaking up and the reason why I've got this podcast and you're speaking and writing, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, is like, we need to learn from history. History is so important. I, I loved history as a child. I think there's so much to learn from the past and human beings haven't changed in millennia. We, we, we have the same urges, the same desires, the same flaws. And whether it's at the time of, you know, Socrates or whatever, we were still making the same mistakes. You know, some yes. things might change hairstyles, you know, clothes. You know, I would even argue it doesn't matter what country you're in, what religion you, you follow. You know, people make the same mistakes. You know, we're flawed. Yep. And um, if we don't learn from mistakes, we don't learn from history. Well, it's all going to be repeated all over again. And we've had a, right. an, an, a disaster of epic proportions, biblical proportions. And I don't see any justice, and that comes us to the
1: fourth medical ethic. Yes, let's yes. talk about justice. So, um, when again, when we talk about justice in medical ethics, it's it's oftentimes, um, you know, we think of justice as being fairness, equal treatment. For example, in legal system, we think of equal treatment under the law and yeah that's true but i think a lot of times in medical ethics it's really more what they call distributive justice which means that the resources which in medicine even in wealthy countries are not completely unlimited have to be allocated in something approaching a fair manner so like i said it's it's not where the rich people get everything and the poor or the rank and file get relatively nothing and I think the flip side of that, which is even more important in the case of COVID, is that the burdens need to be shared with some justification as well, with some justice rather as well. And so, for example, you know, in the United States, well, I, I'll go to the UK, you know, you're, you're, Prime Minister Bojo, you know, having all those parties at 10 Downing Street while they're, you know, locking down your country, would be just yeah. a classic example of, you know, I, I said in the in the article, you know, um, house arrest for thee, wine and cheese for me, kind of thing, and yeah. that sort of attitude is it was it was rife in the United States that Governor of California Gavin Newsom was famous for going to the most exclusive restaurant in the United States and having a big party for one of his lobbyist donors um, while everyone's locked down in California and he's the governor, so he's enforcing the lockdowns sent his kids to private school where they were in school every day when the kids in the in the California public schools were home. All the time doing this, you know, remote learning that was supposedly so great, and which, of course, even the teachers unions admitted was a total disaster, Um, uh, you know, and then Nancy Pelosi getting her hair done and Andrew Cuomo getting COVID tests for his family and for his celebrity friends when, you know, there's uh, supposedly this. A you know, world-ending um, <clears throat> uh, situation going on in, in New York <clears throat> City, and and the situation in New York in the early days was pretty dire. So I, I don't want to understate that. But you know that sort of just unbelievable hypocrisy. Um, not only in that they get the better stuff, they get the tests when no one else does, they get the um, chance to break curfew or whatever. But it's it's this notion that the the rules just don't apply to them the burden mm. just doesn't apply to them and to me that shows two things number one that they're arrogant hubristic people um but it also shows that there's no way that they really believed any of these things that they were foisting on us because 100%. if you really think that this is so deadly then you're not going to go out you're not going to invite people that's, into 10 that's my cat in the that's my cat in the background. Oh, very nice. <laughs> we have a cat absolutely. too. She goes wherever she wants.
0: Yes, absolutely. You're right. They so, they knew it wasn't deadly. It wasn't serious. If they were, they wouldn't be having wine and cheese. They wouldn't be having these parties. Right. They knew all along. Exactly. So, what exactly. does that tell you? That tells you the whole so, thing it was just, just. It was a. It was a. It was a show. It was a, it was, a, it was, it a, was a
1: show. It was a show. And I think that, um, you know, I said, uh, you know, that this was uh, kabuki theater at best and soft core totalitarianism at worst. And, uh, you know, I think that that's what we're headed for. I'm, incidentally, I'm working on an article for Brownstone on this concept of soft core totalitarianism. Cause that's, I think what we're headed for, you know, 100%. it's not the hardcore, it's not the hardcore version of North Korea, but it's, 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 you know it's what i who was it terence or somebody bread and circus right in the old failing uh um uh roman empire and and you know uh, that you 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 keep the people distracted and you can basically do whatever you want and so i think so you know the scared. thing is
0: yeah i mean uh, my parents are from pakistan And quite often people in Pakistan, when we used to go as children, used to say, oh, Britain is very sophisticated and there's no corruption. And I'd be like, no, 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 no. Pakistan and Mm -hmm. the developing countries are just very crude in their corruption. In the UK and in the West, we're just very sophisticated. We do it with style. We do it without people Mm -hmm. realizing. It's subtle. And I would argue the totalitarianism is no different. In North Korea or these communist countries, they lock you up and it's all flags and marches. We're a little bit more sophisticated than that. We make people build their own prisons. We make them, you know, imprison their own minds. You know, it's a lot more sophisticated Mm -hmm. and it's a lot more profitable. So, yeah, I absolutely agree with you. We are definitely marching towards authoritarianism. I I would argue we're already there. We don't have, uh, democracy is an illusion, if that's one thing I've learned. In the last few years, there's no Democrat, Republican, right, left, Labour, Conservative. They're all puppets. They're all being manipulated. And we have no choice. It doesn't matter who you vote for. I mean, Trump, Trump and his warp speed, even now, he hasn't admitted it was a mistake and the vaccines right. didn't work. And he's doubling down and Absolutely. still parroting at the same BS. What a right. joke.
1: No, you're a, so you know, you're absolutely I, I don't have,
0: right. I don't have faith in any of them. Now, what I want to ask you is two questions: What's gone wrong? Why did doctors not speak up? Why have they failed patients and our noble profession? Two. How are we going to change it? How do we change what's happened? How we? How do we instill trust again? Because I don't know about you, but. A lot of people I hear from say they don't trust doctors; they're terrified to go to hospitals Oops. um I don't believe that the trust is there anymore. I don't care what other doctors tell me. I think it's been shattered. So how do we get to where we are? How are we gonna get out of this mess? because I would also argue Clayton, and you you know. of doctors, if they had stuck to the Hippocratic Oath, if they had stuck to these four pillars of medical ethics and said, no, this is wrong. Lockdowns are wrong. Mandates are disgusting, despicable, disgraceful. Mm -hmm. These vaccines, we can't allow them to happen. They're experimental. We do not experiment on pregnant women and unborn children and young children. This is the Nuremberg Code. If you just had 5-10% right. of doctors do this, throw down their coats and stethoscopes, march out of the hospital, the whole thing would have fallen apart. None of this could have happened. But we didn't do it. And th- and that's why we're in we're, the mess that we're in. Would you not agree with me?
1: Oh, I agree with you. I do. Absolutely. I think that one thing that I found to be the case was that even early on the willingness for people to at least, um, while this was still kind of ill-formed, you know, in, in March, April, May, June of 2020, for people to at least think independently was largely dependent upon, I'm talking about physicians, was largely dependent upon whether they were in private practice or whether they were employed. I think that, you know, one of the first questions that a a, a patient needs to ask their doctor going forward is who writes your paycheck, you know, because that's who's going to dictate for the average physician what their decision-making processes are and what they're going to do. And if you've got somebody that is earning their own keep um, and has, as a result, has relatively less supervision or oversight by these you know, these boards and whatever that have now been completely subsumed as well. um, That's somebody that might be able to get to act in an independent fashion. You know, there were Mm. physicians in New York, a couple of them, two or three, who were, you know, under the table treating their patients early treatment with things like hydroxychloroquine and, and ivermectin as long as they could. And those people were uniformly in private practice. So I think yes. that one thing would be to go back toward a private practice model. It may not be lucrative. They may fight you. You may be able to do it in Florida. You may not be able to do it in New York. I don't know. But um, that would be one thing that I think would help because then you're working for yourself and the patients, you know, they, they, to the fullest extent possible, you answer to them and you don't answer to everybody so else.
0: Just to answer this very good point, I just want to tell you something. You probably don't know this. Um, the NHS in the, in the UK is the biggest employer of doctors. The vast majority of doctors are employed by the NHS. I'd probably, I don't know the figure, but it's probably over 90%. I don't work in the NHS. I left in 2017. I'm full-time private. And I'm, for that reason I left was because I knew it was a cult. It was not about mm-hmm. the patient. And it was all about control. And I couldn't treat patients the way I wanted to treat my family. And I left at the risk of a job security and pension mm-hmm. and, you know, for, you know, unpredictable income risk to work on my own. And you've just confirmed exactly what I believe as well. So there you go. You probably didn't know I was full time private. I anyway, didn't,
1: but I think I, 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 uh, salute you for it. And I think that that's one of the things that really needs to be a movement towards that. And I think the second thing is there needs to be a movement amongst individual physicians, particularly folks that go out into that. And I, I've seen a little bit of your work in other formats. And I think you're on the right track with this as well. You really have to say, let's look towards health. Let's not just work, look towards treating illness, because illness is yes. um, you know, it, it, the it, the cat's out of the bag. Now, you know there is are circumstances where you, that that's the case, but you really need people to start taking care of themselves, take ownership of their health, try to say to them you know, let's find the minimum number of medicines that you need. And then let's do the maximum amount of exercise and healthy diet and, you know, healthy interaction with other people and so on and so forth, Uh, you know, reduce or eliminate the substances that you're using and so on and so forth. And this really needs to be Absolutely put at the forefront and you'll earn trust from people um, if you do these things. I think the the third thing is that it really has to fall ultimately on the patients and the patients need to say no. then you say no. And the answer is no. And the answer is still no. And when when they really don't want something. And I think that um, they need to really be um, consumers, I, you know, you hate to say it, but, you know, you have to be a consumer of your healthcare in the in the economic sense. You have to say, you know, look, is this individual or is this system providing the service that I want? Just like if I went to get my car repaired, you know, are they charging yeah. me too much? Are they doing work I don't want? Are they doing a good job? Are they BSing me? Um, if they are, then I'm going somewhere else. And, you know, you just have to, I think, Make things as independent as possible, A, for both doctors and patients, and make things as, you know, kind of um, consumer-based, you know, sort of quality-based or whatever you want to call it, but not quality-based like the, the that's become an Orwellian term amongst, you know, the healthcare yeah. organizations and so on. But, I mean, in a real sense, it's like, am I getting the quality that I want as I see it? And people say, well, you're a you're just a layperson. You don't know what's right for you, blah, 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 blah. I would say two things. Number one, the track record of the experts in the last three years has been pretty horrible. So maybe, you know, are you going to do worse than them? And I think the second thing is, is that the reality <clears> is you're not going to live forever. You do what's right for you. You act according. You know, if you're a doctor, you act according to your conscience, for Pete's sake. And if you're a patient, you act according to your best judgment and you let the chips fall where they may. And I think that that's, you know, that's something that's a tough sell for some people. They want things to be, you know, they want to be told the right thing to do. They want to be told here, take this pill, you know. And so I, I think it's it. The, the, I would guess, Ahmad, that it's going to sort itself out so that some people are going to, both doctors and patients, are going to f- have this alternative model. It's going to be kind of like PCs and Macintosh. And I'm not saying Macintosh is better than PCs. But it's going to be 5 or 10% of people are going to go into this other meth other system because they like it better, because they think it works better and they think it's more user friendly or whatever you want to call it. I don't know how good this analogy is, but but, you know, and then there's going to be a, a majority of people that just go with the flow because it's a little cheaper, it's a little easier and it's you know, run by Bill Gates.
0: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Clayton, you know what? I wish it was as as positive as that. I'm afraid I'm a little bit more negative. I, 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 I feel that we're heading towards Orwellian ter We're already in Orwellian times. I feel we're we're going into a very dystopian future and it's gonna be a you know more and more of these pandemics, climate emergencies, lockdowns, we're gonna have more mandates, more mandate vaccines and drugs. And um I don't think the powers that be one will leave anyone alone. They won't say, Oh, these people have created an alternative alternative system, let them be. The reason why they shut down the The alternative, you know, hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin or vitamin D was because if they work, then it breaks apart their whole narrative. They can't have an alternative model that is successful. You can't have an example of something that works well. You have to destroy that. You have to offer only one. So propaganda can only exist with Mm -hmm. censorship. Propaganda and censorship go hand in hand. And propaganda is ultimately a lie. A lie cannot face truth when it's faced by truth is demolished. So for the lie to exist and perpetuate, you need to squash and hide and destroy the truth. And then you have all the hate speech, the cancel culture, the misinformation, the disinformation. You know, you, you basically mm-hmm. you, you, you destroy the credibility of people like you and me. So they're never going to leave us alone. You will never be able to allow to to go away and build an alternative healthcare system that works and is successful. That's they're never going to let us do that. That's that's personally my opinion.
1: Well, like you I said, you know, I, <laughs> I well, I like I said, I I'll quote Lily Tomlin again. I I I'm every day I'm a little more cynical, and I just can't keep up. That's the best I can tell you, <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> But, uh, you know, I hate to leave. Hate, hate to end it on such a negative note. I guess you have to have hope, and you have to um, do the best you can. You know, you have kids, and I, I have kids. And really, what got me involved in this initially was, you know, in, in early on. I mean, May June of 2020. And it's a topic for another day. But was that I knew that my kids were not going back to in school teaching in the fall of 2020, and I knew it was crazy. And that's what really got me. Um, active. And so, you know, I guess the thing that I would say is that what keeps, keeps me going is, you know, I'm in my mid fifties, you know, I've, I've had up until now, I've had a pretty darn good. I've been blessed, but you know, my kids are in their teens, you know, yeah, Uh, Yeah. you know, I, I I just feel like I have to do what I can, um, because there are generations
0: coming after us. I think basically the way the manipulation on society was done gradually with psycho psychological methods. Um maybe the solution is to do the same but in reverse. The problem that mm. I find is I'm not very good at that. I'm more shock and awe. <laughs> I'm just very blunt. I'm you know, I'm from Glasgow in Scotland. It's a very you know, you just see it as it is, you know, what you yeah. see is what you get. And I think there's an right. element, you kind of need that. People need to wake up. People need that little, they need that snap. You know, enough is enough. You know, guys, oh, yeah. you know, the, oh, yes. the, splash of, the splash of cold water in the face. You know, someone else can do the drip, drip, mm-hmm. slowly, slowly business, but that's not me. I think anyone listening to this, you, you need to realize what's at stake and how sophisticated um, the measures were against us and what we're actually dealing with. And if you're asleep at the wheel, um, it's not going to be good. You need to wake up, you need to wake up yeah. fast and protect your family. I Absolutely. Mean that's, so that's my message of hope is to say it's not too late. Don't take any more shots. Don't take part in the experiment. Do not comply. Civil disobedience. And, it, you know, ultimately, I think they fear the masses. You know, if, if just a significant minority, oh, 5 no 10%. Doubt. Five, 10% get up and say no and protest. You know what? They'll back down. That's my personal opinion. Yeah, I agree.
1: Well, I think you're right. Um, yeah, so okay. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm out of time, but I'd love to well, it's perfect meet time. again in, a, in the future.
0: Listen, it's been lovely speaking to you. Thank you to your wife um, for letting you do this. My wife is waiting for me too. And happy wife is a right. happy life. <laughs> Clayton. That's true. Until next time.
1: Bye-bye, everybody. Great to see you.